Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we are welcoming back a popular guest, Todd Rose, who's the CEO of Populous, and he's the former professor and director of the Laboratory for the Science of Individuality at Harvard. And he's the best-selling author of Collective Illusions, The End of Average, and Dark Horse. Todd, welcome back. Hey, good to be here. Well, we have a couple of things on our agenda, including uh, perceptions of Israel-Palestine, collective illusions around the media and media bias, standardized testing. But before we do any of that, I've been thinking about an earlier conversation you and I had because we talked about how from some of your data and just from some common sense, we were talking about how CEOs don't want to take positions on issues of national concern, like that have nothing to do with their products. And you were saying that both your data, but also the conversations you have for CEOs, they don't want to take these positions. The public also doesn't want them to take these positions. And I've been thinking about this because of this Harvard situation where yeah. Harvard got itself <laughs> in a bind. Harvard, UPenn, MIT, I mean, count the organization where these university presidents have gotten, I think, like as, as some guests on this podcast would say, they've kind of set a standard where they should be commenting on a lot of things. And then when they, mm-hmm. I think, conspicuously didn't on the Israel-Palestine issues, it attracted a lot of attention. I just am curious to what your perspective is on this, because it seems to be exactly what we were talking about the last That's time. Exact, it's exactly right. I mean, there's a great op-ed by a colleague of mine, um, Nancy Gibbs, in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, uh, basically about the the right to remain silent. And <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's worth reading because it's like, you know, universities based on, you know, the University of Chicago a long time ago realized that there were really important reasons for universities not to take positions, right? And leaders of that, because, you know, if, for one thing, it stifles the diversity of, of thinking of individuals in, in those organizations, right? Because if the president of the university takes a position I disagree with, now I have to run the calculation, like, what's the professional cost for me to go against what I clearly seems like it's the, the standing position, but yeah, they just got themselves in trouble. And, you know, it's funny because it's like, it's easy to feel the need to do it when it's something you care a lot about. And then you realize that, yeah, if you're not consistent on it, it's going to bite you. And like I said, we've we talked about this before. It's, it's nobody wants this. I mean, the number of CEOs that would tell me like, do you promise? Do you promise this is what <laughs> the public thinks? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. And yeah, and and here we are. And I think I think you're actually going to see a return to that, right? Which is no silence isn't violence, right? None of this, you know, Dr. Seuss kind of pushing of stifling conversation. Like it's good for organizations to stay in their lane and let individuals have d- diverse opinions. And refresh our our memory on this. What did your data show roughly about what the public wants? Yeah, this was the private opinion stuff, the truth serum, where it's, you know, not just what they'll say out loud, but what do they really think? And it was shocking. This was one where unanimously, there is no demographic in the country where a majority of people privately want CEOs taking public stances on controversial issues. And it's funny, um, you might think that the left was particularly wanting it, but actually in private, uh, people that identify as being Democrat actually had lower levels of wanting it than people identifying as Republican. So this is just something where nobody wants it. You've got a vocal fringe, whether it's your employees or uh, your consumers, if it's a company, who are telling you they want it, but it's just not where Americans are. Yeah. And I think I was just pulling this up. Let's see. Well, okay, Todd, you you can rest well at night. San Francisco Board of Supervisors last night approved a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. I think it's over. Yeah. It's over now. <laughs> it's, 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 you, saw, you saw all the dancing and the like. The, yeah. Also, it was funny because I thought, you know, I mean, God bless them for all wearing masks. Everybody gets a choice. But it was, it felt like I was like back in like 2021 or something. It was a little, a little Look, crazy. It's, I don't even know what to do with it, but I've done I've done so many things on San Francisco at the last debate, the school board, the board <laughs> of supervisors. It's just it's it's like it's as if Ben Shapiro was like in his laboratory cooking up just like, OK, what what kind of caricature? It's like every time I'm like, hey, like the right is straw manning the left. 
they create places like San Francisco. And actually, I've been I've been traveling with some people from Oakland, and they're like, "Whoa, if you think San Francisco is bad, you got to come visit Oakland right now." And it's it's wild, and it isn't. It is wild. It, it's like you can't. Like I I felt that way listening to the university presidents. I was like, "This looks like a B rate Saturday Night Live skit of like caricaturing." this sort of uh, particular ideology. And, and it's just like, no, this is just what they think. <laughs> well, you traveled to the the region recently. So when did you go out there? I went to Israel uh, right after Thanksgiving, so um, on the 27th of November for a few days. And so what did you learn both through that trip, but also through some of the work that you're doing at Populous? Yeah, it was, boy, first of all, you know, I, I went, in part uh, because uh, leaders there are really worried about what was going on with young people in, in America and seeming like the public opinion, um, which didn't, which really caught a lot of people by surprise. And they felt like the idea of collective illusion from their data that they were collecting looked like the best explanation for what was going on. And they recognized the danger. But Oh, just to pause you on that, what, which way did the collective illusion cut according to their theory? That basically, and, and it looks like they're not wrong, that young people who are, you know, pouring out into the streets and chanting basically <laughs> genocidal slogans about Israel don't really privately believe it. They just, they, it's just sort of what they think everybody believes. Oh, and that is, that is definitely true. So we are seeing that basically most of them, when you give them the chance to say, I don't actually know, a majority of young people will take that option. They don't really know. But when you ask them what they think most people their age think, they think most people are pro-Hamas. And you see the consequences of these illusions, right? When I want to belong and, and okay, this is what we do. And you're out there saying things you don't understand. Um, and again, that's not to say you can't care a lot about the lives of innocent Palestinians. You can and should. And you can criticize the Israeli government. You can and should, if you believe that. But it was a little bizarre to see the immediate knee-jerk support of genuine evil. And I'll tell you, this is, you know, being on the ground there, you know, I, I visited the Kibbutz uh, Bari, which was just slaughtered. And I was there before, I mean, they had, the bodies were taken care of, but the blood was still on the ground. The It just had not been cleaned up. And I saw CCTV footage. I was shocked at the just the pure evil. And I I, I say that not lightly. You know, I, I'm not trying to throw that word around lightly. It, I think what was really uh, surprising to me, and you know, I, I ran into an old rabbi there who had survived Auschwitz. And he knew that I was going, we were at a, a forward military camp uh, near southern Gaza. And he knew I was going to go to Marie next. And he said, just to prepare for what I was going to see. And he said something that really was haunting. He said, you know, even the Nazis didn't do this. And I asked him what he meant. He said, yeah, look, the Nazis were evil and obviously they wanted to exterminate us. But he said, with, with the exception of a, only a few people, they didn't enjoy it, right? And he said, what you're going to see is like an unbridled joy at the rape and murder. And that was it. Like, I mean, I, I saw them laughing as they executed little children. And has, has what you, have you learned... Like, cause there's this, there's a study or this reporting that, you know, when people are chanting from the rivers to the sea, they don't know what the river is or the sea is. They don't. Right? And, and when you tell that, when you, when you educate them, the support for the position they're taking collapses. And what kind of educating are we talking about? Cause I've heard those types of claims before, like where it's like, you know, we, I educate like, cause I'm a school choice proponent. Right. So I'm like, we educate you and we like, we educate you on how great charters are. And now, okay. What's your position is on charters. And now we're. Yeah. It, like, for example, if you give them basic facts about, you know, the conflict historically, if you give them even like the idea of like, oh, wait, show me, let's show you the river and the sea you're talking about. So this would mean essentially oh, the elimination like, yeah, of Israel. Yeah, you just literally yeah, like, show them. Yeah. Literally show yeah. them this. And they're like, oh, well, no, I don't mean getting rid of Israel. Right, <laughs> right. Like, well, what do you think that slogan means? Right. right? Like, um, and so, like I said, I, I don't, for me, and given where I am right now with you and, and what you care about, I don't want the interpretation to be that there's just a, what it really is, is just a knee-jerk support of whatever, you know, BB wants to do. It's that what we're witnessing, both 
directly with the views of Israel and Hamas and and this sort of bizarre support for genuine terrorists. This is not, this is not, this is about as black and white as it gets with respect to what they did. You know, that the place for more nuanced debate and discussion about how you help solve what is seemingly an intractable problem historically. Like right now, we're getting into these very, very easy binaries of that stifle the debate, right? We just can't have the constructive conversations. Yeah, I think it's, it, there's just different categories of people, right? And I think there's some people listening to this podcast who are like, look, I'm pro-Palestinian and I do know what that river and sea is and I know the history and I still come out pro-Palestinian. And, and I think that's a totally valid position. I think what, what the Israeli society is grappling with right now is, and, and I've been part of conversations for years about this. I've been there many times. And I, I think this was a ticking time bomb, I think, in part because the leadership is so out of touch with young people generally and global the global conversations. And as I watched them begin the response, I was left thinking that they thought they were in 2006 again, and that there, this was not, that there wasn't TikTok and all these other uh, tools to spread messages around the world and that they kind of were caught with their pants down. And it, it couldn't have come at a worse time because not only because of the the what happened on October 7th, but because of what happened before October 7th in terms of divisions within the country is that there wasn't a coherent, forward-looking vision for the country. And that's what I'm left thinking. You know, it's like, I look at them now and I'm like, I'm people, most people who listen to me will, would say I'm, I'm probably lean sympathetic to Israel, although I hope our audience by this point knows that there's a lot of nuance there. But what I am, I am not is, is sympathetic to their competence of this government at all. Like I do not in any way look at this government and think this is a government that has any vision for the future. No, and I think you're right. And I, and I think that, you know, what's interesting is you think about how seemingly divided we are before October 7th, like Israel was on the precipice, right? Like, I mean, in terms of the internal divisions and, and the out of touchness of the government. But I think you, to your point, you know, they responded... They recognized pretty quickly that they had lost, they underestimated the role of TikTok and social media. And not just, you know, there's some of that is just like telling real stories, but also just the ability to manipulate the conversation. And I just think they were really caught surprised by that. And, you know, they, they've been playing catch up ever since. And it's not the kind of thing you can catch up on that quickly. Because no. it's not it's not one publication. It's it's billions of people around the world, and, and, it, sh- and it shapes a narrative, and that anchors the entire conversation. And what we've seen is some of that is like more organic attempts at that, but then we're also seeing evidence of bad actors. You know, whether it's China or other things, actually driving some of this sentiment. Um, so that it sort of for me is, and I know we we can touch on this later, but I take away from this that as a society, let me, let me say, do you remember there's a book called Guns of August? So it's um, by Barbara Tuckman. It's about World War I and how, why, why it was such a disaster, besides something we should never have done, was that technology, military technology had changed pretty dramatically, but the mindset around war had not. And so we were fighting, you know, as if, it was trench warfare, you know, dig in, fight over small amounts of land, incremental gains. But now you were doing that not with muskets, but with machine guns and bombs and eventually airplanes. And so you just ended up just not understanding what was happening. And it was catastrophic. I think the same thing is happening right now with respect to propaganda and manipulation, which is you hear all this sort of elites in our country talk about disinformation, that it's somehow just factual inaccuracies, right, spread. And that's what the problem is. I actually don't think that's true. I mean, it certainly is a problem. I think the name of the game now is actually the ability to manufacture false consensus and drive these collective illusions. You can manufacture them in a hurry and you can let conformity do all the rest of the bidding, right? And so if we don't recognize that that game has changed and really bad actors understand that, whether it is through bots on X 
right? And we've seen that with Russia and China, or frankly, the algorithms themselves on TikTok. These are weapons, and we've got to get up to speed on what propaganda manipulation really looks like now. Yeah, walk me through this, like, with an issue, because I, 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 I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. I'm thinking about it like, like maybe, and this could be like an incendiary example, but I know you talked to the Biden White House, right? You've talked to them in the past. One thing I find interesting is the deviation between the way that the U.S. public opinion tracks economic indicators and how other developed countries, I'm sure you've seen this data, where it's like other countries, by and large, how the economy is doing is how people feel the economy is doing. Whereas we don't have that phenomenon. And the theories are, we have a uniquely polarized society, yada, yada, yada. Like, let's pretend for a second, like, let's take out out of the conversation what's actually happening right now, but talk about how one could accomplish what we have today, which is a deviation from the economic indicators. How would you manufacture a collective illusion around the economy? Two things. One, I'll circle back to it because I think there's also some specific reasons why the public perception might actually be more accurate than elite indicators, meaning the way we've dealt with inflation by making up back with Clinton era, the core inflation stuff rather than, so, hey, if we remove food and, and energy costs, look at, and, and we do this all the time right now. So a lot of these indicators are actually absent the very things that everyday people see and experience. So we have some data just recently privately, because we think the economy is going to be this big problem, like everybody, right, uh, for the election. And 76% of Americans say they have had to make adjustments to what they buy at the grocery store in the last year. Like, that has changed. Now, of course, if we're looking at our indicators and saying, oh, no, everything's fine, inflation is down, it's like, you're not tracking that. <laughs> like, And I remember, uh, was it Krugman or whatever who did that one? He, he got roasted for it on Twitter where he was like, hey, we won the fight against inflation. And his graph he showed, like, it was absent food, energy, housing, and used cars. <laughs> and we're like, wait, so, so what are we measuring? So let, let's, let's just pretend that like, that's not the case that, so but here's how I would do this very, very easily, right? Is remember perceived consensus, easiest way to drive it is the loudest voices repeated the most. That's how your brain reads what the majority thinks. So I would anchor in something where it's very easy for me to say, wait, I've experienced that. So we all know food prices have gone up, Right. So think about the story of like, how was like the $18 Big Mac or whatever? I can't remember yeah. the Big Mac mill where like yeah. stuff like that, which was, it was an anomaly. It was a, it was not true. It was like some Yeah, we covered thing. it. We did a whole thing on it where it was like some kind of novelty item on the menu. And yeah, it was, yeah. It was from a year ago, but it's exactly, was, but that's not right. how it gets pushed. Right? right. So what I would do is I would do the same things. Let's just say we're on X. I would use our bot farms. I would find a story that is plausible, right? So like that one, like if you don't dig too deep, you're like, wow, like McDonald's is so expensive now. Thanks, Biden, right? Like something like that, right? Hashtag Bidenomics. And then I would say, I would then swarm it. I would retweet it all over the place. I would then use secondary bots to attack anybody that tried to correct the record. And pretty soon, it's very easy for that to be the thing that's trending. And that's the thing I see. Um, and as long as it, it has a whiff of like plausible, right? It's plausible. Or um, I would, even if you want to make stuff up, I would say I would make claims about groceries. I'd make claims about gas. I would make claims about everyday things. And it's just not very hard. Like the research is pretty clear. You only need, if only about what, five to 6% of your interactions are with bots and those bots are engineered right, they can guarantee what the group consensus becomes. Hmm. And we know from research, it's like a bare minimum, double digits, 10 to 15%, sometimes even higher, depending on the research, of all of our interactions on social media are actually with bots. You know, what's interesting is like, it doesn't even have to be a bot, right? We talk about bots, but it could just be people with ill intent. Yeah. Uh, or just people... Or people or who strong think they're opinions. Right. Yeah, people who yeah. think they're right. Yeah. Well, think about that. Think about your point on that one, which is, so most issues, most people don't have strong opinions on. Do you know what I mean? It's a classic problem of the fringes are always going to care more. Always. The things that I am most passionate about, like something like that. And so I'm going to be vocal. And by the way, if I'm under the same illusion where I'm like, yeah, everybody agrees with me. 
So I'm going to shout it and everybody else is going to say nothing. And here we go. Right now, one of the things I think is really funny about this, though, just to show you how fragile those are, if we come back to the Israel thing and the broader anti-Semitism, if you want to see the truth of where the American public was on that, look at John Fetterman. <laughs> like, this dude was, he's the most popular senator in the country right now. I think it was what, yesterday, the favorables? His favorables, I just pulled them up here. He has a favorable rating of 76% amongst Democrats in Pennsylvania. Now, his unfavorable is 7%. In June last year, those same people, his favorable was only 39%. It's like, you start saying what people really think, they're going to be pretty happy. But it's just like, he just was like, screw it, I don't care anymore. <laughs> right. <just> gonna... <laughs> and, and the consensus was that he was putting himself, he was getting in trouble because he was like, you know, so vehemently pro-Israel, but he's also been, Correct. I think, a bit of an anomaly on a lot of issues. But the thing is, is if he was getting himself in trouble, he would not have nearly doubled his favorable ratings amongst his own constituency. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I'm also a believer that it's okay to get yourself in trouble. Voters will respect that. I don't think that necessarily was what was going on here. Yeah, I think like on the economy front, I'm fascinated by this question. You know, we've done a few segments on it. And it's like, I don't know. And like departing from the sort of collective illusion, like how do you create a collective illusion? It's like, you know, we were looking at the Fed data, which showed this tremendous wealth accumulation over the past few years, and especially at the lower rungs of society. I'm sure you've seen this data, mm -hmm. where it's like actually the poorer you are, the better you've done in real terms. The fact that unemployment is so low, the fact that wages are outpacing uh, inflation now, or at least in this period, obviously there's a huge thing that I have my mind on is how you treat the effects of prior inflation that are still with us, right? Because those That's aren't right. things that go away. Like if inflation stops today, that doesn't mean people have adjusted to what's happened in the past. You start to go through those things and you're like, all right, like there's a lot for Biden to work with, but people aren't okay. And, and, you know, to your point, like a lot of the stuff around core inflation and what's included and not like some of these issues are worse in a lot of countries where people feel better about their economy. It's weird. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I also think when you get to the feeling of it, you know, you can think about, we see this a lot in our data where people will say, I mean, I think I'm okay, but I'm pretty sure most people aren't. And so that makes me worried. And I think maybe it won't be, it won't be okay soon. And so they start to pull back, right? They start to behave as though it's going to be bad. And economies, by and large, are self-fulfilling prophecies. <laughs> like, you know, with, you know, within the parameters of some, of some, some objective reality, it's, it's really that their belief in how the economy is doing is going to determine how the economy is doing. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, this is the only path for, I think, for Biden. Like, if he's going to win this election, which I'd, I'd be curious to how you're handicapping it right now, if he's going to win, he has to turn that perception. Oh, it's, it's, I, I think this is everything. So, I, if I were making a prediction, I would say how people respond to the question of, of how their finances are doing, their own lives, right? Not the macro economy in September let's just say, right? It's probably going to be the best predictor of whether Biden wins or not. Because it, the problem is, is he's stuck. You know, I think he's done a good job on Israel, but it's, it's, it definitely isn't a universal opinion in his party, right? And so that's going to be dividing. I think that he has to hold the bag on a lot of <sighs> some of the unraveling of these illusions whether it's in the space of DEI or the broader, you know, stuff like this, which, you know, was never really popular in private for people. And so I, I just think at the end of the day, if people feel good about the economy their, and their, their personal finances, he'll be okay. But it's kind of frightening to me because just cards on the table. I, I like, I'm a rapidly registered independent. I like this. I'm a classical liberal um, in my uh, persuasion. I think Trump's an existential threat to the yeah, Republican. same. And so, yeah. so, and I, and and I don't, I don't say anything about. I can see why some people will vote for him, and I'm not saying anything about those folks. I mean, my, I have family members who are MAGA supporters. I just think the the lesson that that's going to teach us about what's okay um, if you give him power again. And I, I actually think it has nothing to do with Trump. I think it is entirely about how we're going to perceive Biden and Kamala Harris and. I, I worry that the the left with, and this is maybe a little too inflammatory, but with their commitment to identity politics has boxed themselves into a corner where 
it's like, they just got to win, man. Like, <laughs> you just got to win. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's funny. I had this debate with people because I'm, I come from Democratic Party politics. I work for Obama, but I have been clear on two things. One is I thought Kamala was a poor choice and I thought the framing of the choice was horrible, uh, which is there wasn't really a lot of selling on of her and her record and all this kind of stuff, in part because she had switched on the things that made her so notable, like her sort of law and orderness was gone by then. Um, and she was very finger to the wind by the time she came on board. But she was sold like before the pick was ever made. It was like, hey, I've got to pick a woman of color. Yeah. And so uh, I can't remember woman or woman of color, but it was at least I think it was a woman of color. He said yeah. it's going to be a woman of color. So then like, yeah. you know, eminently qualified person. But yeah. every, in everybody's head, it's like, well, you're not being picked for your qualifications. You're being picked for other reasons. And that's not the fault of the right wing for saying that. That's the fault of the people doing the choosing. Uh, right. Once it, you set up that choice, that's going to be in people's heads. People aren't dumb, you know? Right. And, th and that's exactly right. And you saw that even at Harvard, right? Which is, yeah. we now know that on that search for Claudine Gay, they were like, we're going to abide by the DEI recommendations. I mean, and it's like, listen, there are unbelievably qualified women of color. <laughs> like, you know, maybe not Harvard. I think like a Danielle Allen is phenomenal. Like these are things, but as soon as it's like, no, we've already handicapped it. This is what we're going to do. What are people supposed to think? And I think it does such an injustice to the effort and ability of people to frame it that way from the jump and act as though they didn't have the ability to earn that on their own, which they did. Yeah, and people, like I have a conversation with Democrats about this, people saying that I'm either sexist or racist or these implications because I have criticisms of her. And I'm like, well, I'm half Indian. She's half Indian. Wouldn't this be like amazing if this were like identity <laughs> politics were my thing? I mean, it's, I, I got to be doing some weird gymnastics to come out that way. But then when now Biden comes up, I'm being told I'm ageist. And I'm like, look, I, I had this debate the other day and I'm like, look, I'll vote for Biden. Like I will weaken at Bernie's my way all the way through Biden <laughs> at this point. Which is, I think is what it's going to be, yeah. by the way, but yeah. And I have no problem with it. I mean, I do have problems with it. I will do it. Uh, but now I'm being told I'm ageist because I think that somebody who is both the oldest, will be the oldest president ever and definitely seems to be showing it and to me and to the American public, by the way, it's very clear that, you know, if I said, you know, Michael Jordan can't suit up for the Bulls anymore, nobody's going to be like, that's ages. It's like at a certain point, you know, as we're talking, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, Nick Saban, you know, maybe Belichick will come back, but you've got 72 year old coaches who are very recently won national championships and Super Bowls who decide they're too old to do those jobs. Yet we have people in the Senate, Congress, and the presidency who, like, God forbid, we, we use age as a standard. Like, well, we have and, a limit. And what's crazy about that? So, first of all, uh, I am a rabid Pats fan. I think, if I remember right, you're, you're a part of the Bills Mafia. Yeah? Yes, huge. Okay, yeah, huge. good. First of all, Gotta love Josh Allen. I, I, I mean, we could talk forever about it. It's love like, that, I dude. mean, I just love watching him as crazy as it is. It's like, he's he's frustrating and wonderful at the same time. Yeah, no, no, listen, listen he'll go to hero ball in a bit, yeah. but his passion and just like, I just, I love watching him play, uh, but I'm excited. Uh, we'll, we should do a whole show on uh, who we should take with the third pick. Um, but anyway. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, it's that is like a fool's errand, I think, like trying to figure that stuff out. Yeah. yeah, it's a. Uh, it's like, do you grab the quarterback because you're probably going to have Jaden Daniels, or is that like, no, just go get the best receiver on the planet and go get Kirk Cousins. Well, I anyway. think I think you should pick Vrabel, by the way, as your coach. Oh, by the way, hundred percent agree. Yeah. And then and then you we you get a good GM. Yep, a real GM. Yeah, a real GM. No, <laughs> yeah. really though, that's the yeah. thing. And um, it's well, uh, yeah. So so, but you're right. Back to the agency. To me, here's my chief complaint with again with my cards on the table that I think stopping Trump is actually really important. It's more important than who actually gets in office, in my mind, in yeah. the short term. So it frustrates me to no end that the left, the left seems so, and by left, I would say progressives, the, the, the far left. They are so seemingly satisfied with moral victories. Yes. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like, well, at least I'm not an ageist or a sexist. I'm like, listen, dude, you have to win. Right. You have to win. And Let's just look at this, right? I, I have this um, based on no, absolutely no data or no inside information. So let me clarify, which is, you know, always the best way to start. Yeah, it's a good uh, way to start the sentence. I got to believe that Biden's people understand 
this problem. And I think they're scared to death of the progressive fringe that if they would have opened up this primary, yes. that something much worse would have happened, which probably could be true, or you'd expose the rift and that would be hard. I would not be surprised if the plan is get to the convention. Because if you get to the convention and you don't accept, right, then there are mechanisms where it's the delegates, right? It's the, and then then you start to think, well, then Newsom's shadow campaign makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the, but you know how this is going to look. A white man over the vice president of the United States. Like this would tear the whole party apart if, if it wasn't. It's interesting, right? If, I think in theory that's true. But I think the second Trump gets the nomination and you're staring down the barrel of Trump being president again, I wonder. And, and especially if the polling is showing, because I think Kamala will get absolutely Crushed. destroyed. Yeah, it's funny. I, mean, it won't even... I actually haven't met a person recently, including her staffers, who argue anything otherwise. Oh, it's like listen, in private, in private yeah. like you and I both know, when you talk to him, it's like, this is going to be so bad. So the question is, like, if you're seeing polling that's basically showing a landslide victory for Trump or Newsom beating Trump by 10 points, I don't know. Like, but I just think, it, I agree with you that it's, it's going to look like machine party, like smoke-filled room. But I just, I, it's hard to imagine Biden going all the way. Like, it just is. And out, now, on the, on the, like, the weekend at Bernie's version with a really good economy, like, like that's being perceived as really strong. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you have to bank on people's low expectations for the presidency, which I guess is we've done a lot of work to bake in that that low those low expectations. I'm I'm worried about it, and I'm I'm particularly worried just about the arrogance I see, and it's probably arrogance plus defensiveness out of the Biden camp, where they're like people. You know, I used to work for Axrod when Axrod, I think, very respectfully at first raised questions, and it was like you might want to reconsider. They leaked that Biden called him like an asshole or something. I forget what the exact wording was. And Ron Klain was coming after him. And then they roll out Jim Messina to say that there's bedwetting and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, guys. The name calling is the dead giveaway yeah. that you've touched a nerve. Yeah. Like that's always the case, right? Like, and a couple things. One is, how about, you know, as, a, as an Obama guy yourself, like, man, there was a period of time when we got to choose between Barack Obama and John McCain. Right. I mean, there's, not, there's not a bad choice. And there. then Obama and Romney. And then Obama and Romney. Yeah. And I was like, wow, we are really getting somewhere. And now we're like, hey, let's take the oldest people with incredibly low favorables and pit them against each other. Round well, two. Th- this is my theory. Is like the American people are very clear that they want something different. And the first party to do it if any of them decide to grab the mantle, it's going to have a huge advantage. So I think if it's Nikki Haley, God, if it was even Vivek Ramaswamy, and like, right. trust me, I, I, don't, <laughs> right. I, I, have, I don't have a lot of positive things to say about him, but just literally anybody with a fresh set of There's energy. There's an energy, and a, I, I, it's similar to what you said about Israel, right? It's like, we are not looking forward. It's interesting. Um, we have some new data that uh, was showing like the, in private, no matter what demographic you look at, like we're talking like 80% of the American public says they're sick of us looking back, focusing on the past. They want to look to the future. And, you know, I think that historically big shifts have happened when you've got a talented politician who's able to harness people's deepest frustrations and channel it through their highest aspirations, right? That's it. Like you've got to do that. I think Obama did that extremely well. Right. He didn't hide from the difficulties. Right. But he did put it into a future that people wanted to be a part of. Reagan did that extremely well. Right. You know, and we I just it's, you know, Ron DeSantis is about the the, he just has no political skill whatsoever. Like, I mean, you were you were born on third base in this moment. and You somehow managed to, like, wander back to second base. Like this is. Well, I think the party is so it's it's been so thoroughly devastated by the Trump years that the kinds of politicians who would do extremely well, like there's no, there, there isn't fertile ground for them, right? You, you can't get through the primaries, right? Yeah. So uh, to, to your point, we talk about it as the Republican Party, but it's just not, right? Like it's, it's, it is MAGA and it's, um, I almost feel like you're, well, the, the 
you just want to start the maybe the the new Whig party, right? <laughs> we can. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's the thing is like if it weren't for the weird math of the electoral college, I would be the biggest supporter of any third party candidate, really. Yeah, like, but I but mean, it's basically like it's a suicide. guarantee that yeah. you're making Trump president yeah. in many ways. But that's that's why I think you have to do two things, right? I think the plan because I do think at this point the two parties are the problem, like that they have failed us um, in this structure. I think you have to do a couple of things. One is you can't, the electoral college, you can deal with, you can't deal with it directly, but there's that compact that's going on where you've got the various states who are agreeing. If you get to the critical number, then they agree that their uh, votes go to the national winner. So then you just neutralize the electoral college. Second, I think that the idea of open primaries and ranked choice voting is actually really, really important. And you can do that at state level. Alaska did that with in the Senate, and Murkowski survived the Trump, you know, wrath. And uh, I have this secret plan that I put out with you. Like the public doesn't understand ranked choice voting, and it's easy to to show it as too complicated. I want to get some of my rich friends to sponsor like The Voice or other cultural stuff and use ranked choice voting, so people just get used to it. Right? Yeah, I like that. You know, we used it in New York and and I know like Eric Adams isn't exactly quitting himself well, but I think it was the choice of the the city, right? There were these these sort of brownstone style progressives and then there was Catherine Garcia and Adams and Yang who together dominated if you put the three of them together. And what wound up happening was it didn't matter that there were three of them because in the end, people's votes reallocated. And what I like about this is it consistently shows you get less um, negative advertising because everybody wants to be the other yes. person. Yes, yeah, yeah, people actually talk to each other like human beings. Yeah, you know, it's, there's an incentive for it, and you also allow for I don't have to play the game of electability, right? Yeah, Which right. is the massive collective illusions we see all the time that end up holding marginalized communities or women back more than anybody, right? It's like, like, oh, am I going to vote for Pete Buttigieg? I don't know. I Will everybody else vote for a gay candidate? Right. That, that, that should not be the question, right? right? And so so I think if we can start to socialize different approaches, and I think the cool thing is, is you can get this done, ironically, in states where one party is dominating, because it's like, do you want to, in Alaska or let's say Utah, do you want one Republican, one Democrat, or do you want four Republicans right. for, to choose from? Right. So the short term, it's good for the party. In the long run, it destroys their power. Yeah. It's always hard to get people to give up their power or to change anything about it. I mean, well, okay. I, on this sort of final analysis on this point, I am deeply concerned this year uh, about, like, I think it's it's just, it's wild how close we are to some really bad, bad possibilities. I said, and I still believe this, that there is a greater risk of extreme political violence this year than even in 2020. Um, oh, we saw so much of it. We see this in our data, which is like a shocking plurality of people who say that violence may be necessary. And, you know, one thing that's really terrifying to me, we're, we're, we're building a, a new um, social pressure index, you know, around where people are lying and, and developing a, a metric so we can monitor the amount of pressure people feel. In our early test data, we were asking around whether people think the election is already rigged, right? That, that it's it's basically already rigged. 40% say yes. And is this broken but down by one party or the other? So yeah, you, not the surprisingly. The question. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not surprising, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're just like, what? Like, yeah. you know, so so you're, you're primed that unless the results turn out the way you wanted it, to believe it was because it was rigged. And I also worry under with all these collective illusions, there's going to be votes, the way it's going to shake out in a lot of ways, not just the presidential, is going to go against what you think was going to happen. And it's not going to be because it was rigged. Right. You know, and so I just think this is going to be a really terrifying year. This will sound really bad. What I worry about the most is a really close election. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, I worry about a Trump victory, no matter what it looks like. Yes. I would say my <laughs> rank order is like Trump victory. Uh, second is close election that like obviously Trump victory baked in, but close election that becomes disputed and, and all that violence around it. Uh, and then third is a not close election that also has the violence around it. I just think that 
Yeah, I it's wild, you know, and you just have to kind of look back in history and say, you know what, like there have been difficult moments before. This is when we have to really dig in and play our part and, you know, not get too anxious, but just do the work the best you can to create a sane conversation. Let's do a 180 and talk about education. So we talked about the crisis at the the Ivies and the sort of upper echelon schools that's going on right now. And my sense is, this is these things are never about what they're about, right? This is not about whether Claudine Gay plagiarized. I don't actually think it's about Israel-Palestine. It's about, I think, a perception amongst the public that you've picked up on, that these schools have changed and that they no longer serve the interests of rank and file Americans. And one part of this that I think has been obvious to me for a while is that these schools have pulled back from objective measures and have been hiding behind these squishy metrics for admissions, these so-called qualitative metrics. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for the American people to figure out how does one get into these institutions? Who are these people? And I also think that on the other side of it, because there's also great inflation at these schools yeah, and the, there's like very arguable rigor at these schools that when people come out of those schools, they don't respect them either. It's not like the Harvard person Correct. commands the Correct. same respect as they did before. Do you share this assessment? I do. And I think so, just to say it back to you, look, it's these were the triggers that allowed people to pile on on something. There's a broader sense. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think the public's wrong about this. I think elite universities do not fulfill their societal Agreed. obligation. Yeah. I also don't think they should be nonprofits like some oh, of these. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. How in the world? Like you think about like Harvard just bought up all of Alston basically. Right. To do it. And wait, you're, you're tax exempt? It's a country club. You, you know what it is? It is a country club for sure. It's a, it's a, it's a finishing school. Country club it is one giant hedge fund sitting on top of a university. Right. It happens to have a university attached to it. That's that's what it is. Like, and I just think it's like absurd that 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 they are not for profit because they're absolutely not. And so you saw the you know the the New York Times piece on yeah David you know, Leonhardt. Yeah, that was the lead into essentially. And for our audience, is basically saying everybody likes to pick on the SAT, ACT, but when you compare it to every other conceivable metric that we use to pick people, it both is more predictive of success, no matter how you define it, getting a great job, going into a great grad school, performing well in undergrad, uh, but it's also the least regressive of all of these. There's actually like, all of them are regressive because their society in general tracks race and economics pretty closely, but this is the least regressive and obviously most objective version of the story that we have. So, Here's what I would say. Uh, like, I think, um, number one, there are a few, I think, sort of fatal flaws with that article. I don't disagree with the general premise of getting to more objective measures. And we can talk about how we do that. Number one, it's kind of cute when um, this is just for the wonky stats people. We're like, look how much better this predicts. And then they show the slope of a regression line. I'm like, dude, the slope is not the indicator of <laughs> how predictable okay, it is. explain it to me because I'm not a stats person like yeah. that. Yeah. So, so the actual metric that you care about is what we, in regression is what we call R square, which is the amount of variance that the model explains, right? So if we're looking at what in this case, they're only looking at college grades amongst Ivy plus schools. That's all that data was. Okay. Fine. First of all, you got a huge problem of range restriction on the dependent variable because the average GPA at Harvard is like a 3.8, right? Wow. So the, the great inflation, I, I don't know what you're explaining. But okay, so the when you saw on the graph the line, and you're, look how steep this is versus this, that's just saying for every one unit change of a predictive variable, how much of a unit change is it? Like, like that's that has nothing to do with how strong of a predictor it is. It's the tightness of the clustering of the data around that line that tells you how good of a predictor it is. Now, What's interesting is they're not wrong that, for example, in that data, SAT scores did a better job predicting college grades compared with high school grades, right? That, that was not wrong. But let's just put this into context because my psychology friends and my test people, they, they like to lower the bar in their field by being like, well, humans are messy. We, we can't predict as well. With that data right there, so not anything different. I'm just, I'm just pulling it up again here. 
The actual SAT explains 19% of the variance of college grades in Ivy+. That's not nothing, but let's just put it into some practical concerns. Let's say your car's got a problem, and you go to a mechanic, and the mechanic's like, don't worry, don't worry. I understand 19% of what's wrong with cars. I'm good. (laughs) So let's not pretend that the SAT is some amazing picture. And what they didn't talk about, but was right there in the data, because it doesn't fit the narrative they were pushing, is right there in their same modeling in that research, they had another variable, which was, which high school did you go to? When you include which high school you went to, that model predicted, just looking at this, 65% of the variance. And, and from what I understand about that data point, and the reason why they did not mention it is because the elite private schools do really well. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, duh, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so all this is telling me is something my grandma could have told me without looking at any data, right? right. If you go to an elite prep school, you're probably going to do better in elite college. Right. <laughs> like this, this is not, so, so this is not to say, like, I, I just want to say, first of all, so that the other thing is, is we're looking at elite schools. We can talk about that in a sec. I think that's not the right measure. But right. And I think problem. you and I didn't go to elite undergrads. I went to uh, SUNY Binghamton. Yeah, I went to Weber, Weber State. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and I, by the way, I love Binghamton. I could talk about it forever. I thought it did a, a tremendous job. Yeah. And most, most people don't go to highly selective universities. So the metric of like, like this is an obsession about elite schools in a moment where the public doesn't give a damn. And so what I would hate is for an insight that's literally relevant only to predicting 19% of variance of inflated grades at Ivy pluses to lead to policy or practical changes that affect people like we we were like going to like Weber State in an open enrollment. Like, let's let's not get too crazy. But let's go. But I do agree that we should be more objective. Here's my gripe. The SAT is still bullshit, pardon my French. It still is. It is a bell curve test. You are forcing, it is not measuring how much you know. It is forced to compare you to a hypothetical average student. And the reason that colleges want to use that is it allows them to play a status game. It's not about standards. It's about being able to say, we only took the top 5%, right? But let's just broaden that out if we want to stick with objective measures, because I'm all for that. You can use mastery-based assessments. They're called criterion referenced assessments. If you want to become a medical doctor, there is a test you have to pass, the licensure exam, that is mastery-based. So if nobody passes it, nobody gets to become a doctor. If everybody does, everybody does. The last thing in the world you would want is the top 10% every year get to become doctors, <laughs> whether they know that. So, so Yeah, and you wouldn't clear. want the flip side of that, which is right. Like if there's if there are 100 qualified doctors, you don't want to split them in half and only give it the MD to 50. Because they happen to be relatively better. Yeah. And so here, here's the easy answer to a path to objective measures that would work really well and colleges would hate, which is tell me what your standards are. Okay. Because this whole idea of using it to select in, it must be because there are certain things you got to know and be able to do in order to do well at this university. Right, that that's a reasonable thing. When I was on the admissions committee at Harvard for ten years for graduate school, the thing that mattered it was never the GREs; they don't predict anything. It was the writing portion of that, right? And it was a threshold. We just knew consistently from our own data that if you scored low enough on writing, this is a writing intensive experience, and it's not fair to you or to us to let you in. So, if you want to come up with standards, great. Okay, then use these mastery assessments, and then here's the trick: of all the people that apply that have passed that threshold, you lottery it. That is as fair as it could possibly be because nobody feels like the game's rigged when they don't win the actual lottery. Right, yeah, the odds were in my favor. But think about how powerful this could be if Harvard did that and other Ivies. And then other schools could drift off of it. Like, okay, so not everyone gets to go to Harvard, but we already know that you were past enough of that to get there. Other schools could jockey for you. Like, but but again, yeah, yeah, they would hate it because it, it 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 robs Harvard of their ability to say we have the best. That is exactly right. So now let's just be honest about what the game has been in higher ed, which is it's this Louis Vuitton model of opportunity where it's false scarcity and a status game. 
That's why Harvard's best thought of as a finishing school. And that's fine. I'm not right. like, look, well, I went well, to Harvard. Well, Everybody you know fine. what would happen if they didn't do that is like, let's say they did the lottery and they, they separate you out among Harvard, Princeton, Yale, MIT, Stanford. Then the status of those schools would revert to who does a better job of educating those people. Correct. Which, hey, imagine Nobody that, knows. right? Nobody imagine, knows. Nobody <laughs> knows. Like, like, it's like, imagine, and, and this is at a moment when the value of a college diploma has declined pretty dramatically. Like, I'm not saying it's nothing, and I think there's, it's, it's even more valuable than, than I think the, the narrative is, is painting it. But I will tell you that the last thing I'll say is this obsession the New York Times has, I feel like, with elite colleges and SATs is so out of touch with the American public, it is unreal. Like, I'll give you a specific example. We just did a um, big private opinion study on the American dream and people's views of success. This was just a few months ago. Really interesting findings in general. But one of the things that was shocking, but consistent with the rest of the trends that we've been tracking is the role of college, which for a long time was actually one of the big three markers of the American dream, right? It was, you know, go to college, get married, have a home, get a home, family, that kind of thing. It is now in trade-off priorities for the American public, a college diploma ranks in the bottom 10 attributes. It is ranked 54th out of, I think it was like 61. I can't remember, it's low 60s of total attributes. And this is something you can't game. So this is where people are. What's worse is going to an elite college is ranked 58th. But when you ask people, what do you think most Americans think? They think going to elite college is ranked fifth. So here we are in a world where people see education as being instrumental. Like I, I want to be, I'm going to use it for skills and knowledge to have a career that I enjoy, that I can contribute, all that kind of stuff. And our public narrative and our, our elites are still talking about it as if this is 20 years ago. You know what I mean? And it's so out of touch. And this is back to like, I wish we could just clear the field of our octogenarians and I mean, you think about the the young, very impressive political talent that exists. Actually, I think on both sides, but you know, like a Wes Moore, a Josh Shapiro. There are a number of really, really talented people. I mean, you know, they're young, but like, I want to hear from these people and I want to hear from them speaking what they believe is true. And I like, I just think the public's ready for it. Our politicians are just so consumed by these illusions that they don't understand that it's just, it's it's no wonder no one trusts anybody anymore. Well, on that sunny note, Todd, uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you for joining <laughs> us again. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Yeah, uh, just, you know, toddrose.com um, or populist.org. Uh, any of our research is always on our website and I'm always happy to hear from people. Well, thank you, Todd. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And our voicemail is 321 uh, Send us in a question, a comment, or anything else. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs>